this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Bryn Turnbull about her debut novel, The Woman Before Wallace. The dramatic affair between Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson, ending with his abdication and their marriage, which lasted until his death in 1972, is well known. But Wallace Simpson was not the future king's first lover, or even his first divorced American lover. This novel tells the story of Talma Morgan, who not only preceded Wallace in the Prince of Wales' affections, but introduced him to her successor. The novel, however, opens near the end of Talma's stint as the royal mistress, in an even more dramatic set of events that will be fully revealed only at the end of the book. October 9, 1934. RMS Empress of Britain. Thelma considered Manhattan her home, though she hadn't lived there for over ten years. To her, it was a city of firsts. She had smoked her first cigarette there, a lucky strike stolen from a nun's desk drawer at the convent and passed around the dormitory after bedtime. She and her twin sister Gloria had rented their first apartment on Fifth Avenue, an attic brownstone which at 16 years old they were far too young to live in unchaperoned, but did so anyways stuffing the living room with flowers and leaving the icebox empty. Her first encounter with the society pages had been at New York Harbor. She was eight at the time, mobbed by reporters at the behest of their diplomat father in an attempt to turn the tone of a negative press scrum. The next day's papers would run pictures not of Harry Morgan on his recall to Washington, but of his twin daughters, Thelma and Gloria, walking down the gangplank in matching pinafores. And now, please join me in welcoming Bryn Turnbull. Hi, Bryn. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. The Woman Before Wallace is, as I mentioned, your debut novel. How did you get started writing fiction? You know, it was always something that I wanted to do. Ever since I was a little kid, I was the one in the corner, you know, scribbling on the backs of envelopes. And it was something that I always thought that I'd come to later in life. Um, I, uh, in my previous life, I was a um, communications specialist. And I started writing this book as kind of like an escapism thing. Um, I found Thelma's story, I realized this was a story that I needed to tell. So I sort of accelerated my plans on on becoming a writer, thanks, thanks really to this story. And how did you go about it once you decided to do that? Did you join a group or take classes? Or what did you do? 
So I decided that if I wanted to do this right, if I wanted to really commit to, to telling her story properly, I'd go back to school for a year. So I applied to do a master's in creative writing at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And I got in and I took that year as my like make or break. So if I turns out I'm a terrible writer, I can always go back, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go back into the working world. But if it turns out that this is something that I really want to pursue, I'll have really worked on it well for a year and focused just on that for a year. So um, yeah, luckily I got into school. I, I spent that year just on her story and on the other side of that year, it was, uh, you know, I realized that it was something that I, I really did want to pursue in earnest. So what made you want to tell uh, Tama Morgan's and Gloria Vanderbilt's story? We have Madonna to thank for that. She directed a movie called W.E. And I think it came out in about 2011. And it's about Wallace and Edward. And she referenced the moment that kicks off um, the, the, my novel, where Talma asks Wallace to take care of the prince while she's traveling. And that, to me, just seemed like such a strange request to make of a friend, even if it was, you know, someone that you trusted. It just seemed such, such an odd thing to say, particularly, you know, given the aftermath of that, Wallace, you know, stealing Edward kind of out from under her nose. And so that was the kickoff for telling her story. I... I went down a bit of a Wikipedia rabbit hole. And when I came out the other end, I realized that not only was Thelma integral to what later became the abdication crisis in the UK, her twin sister, Gloria Vanderbilt, was at the center of the biggest custody battle in American history to that time. And those two seminal events of the 1930s had Thelma at the core. And so that just seemed like such a such an interesting place to be and such an interesting woman to have kind of almost been written out of history. Um, you know, and, and kind of forgotten up until now. It is a fascinating story, and especially with that, you know, her, in effect, handing him over to Wallace Simpson, which is, as you say, very strange. But let's start with her. Um, when we hear the name Morgan in connection with royalty and the Vanderbilts, uh, at least I naturally thought of J.P. Morgan, but um, I gather that's not Thomas' background. So what can you tell us about her as a person and a, as a personality? Yeah, so uh, you're, you're correct. She's not part of the J.P. Morgans. Uh, her father actually was a diplomat, um, and he was, uh, you know, back and forth from Washington, stationed all around the world. And he met uh, her mother, Laura Kilpatrick Morgan, who was Chilean. And together they traveled the world. They had four children, including Telma and her sister, Gloria. And so Telma's childhood was a little bit nomadic. Uh, her older sister was kind of shuttled off to live with relatives in the States. Her brother was sent to boarding school in Switzerland. So they weren't a very close family until until later in life. But uh, Talma and her sister, they kind of became socialites in New York when they were about 16 years old. Um, their formal schooling ended. They moved into an apartment in the city. And they garnered a reputation as the Magnificent Morgans. They were beautiful. They were vivacious. They were almost, I, I, I almost compare them to the Kardashians of their day. Uh, they were famous for being famous. They, they made newspaper covers, uh, magazine covers because of their beauty. And um, Thelma married at 16 years old. She eloped uh, with her first husband, who turned out to be abusive. And once that relationship ended, that's really where my book starts, where with the dissolution of that marriage, with that divorce becoming final, and Thelma um, 
joining up again with her sister, Gloria, who'd married into the Vanderbilt family. So, um, yeah, the Magnificent Morgans, that's, that's what they were known as. And how would you describe her personality? I'd say she was rather unconventional for her day. Um, she, you know, as, as we kind of see through the course of this novel, she wasn't willing to sit back and let her husband's infidelities define her life which um, I think for the time and the place, particularly in the UK and the upper crest society into which she married, that was not, uh, that was not a regular thing. And um, further, she didn't allow other people's opinions of her sister to define her own opinions. Uh, Gloria Vanderbilt, Gloria Morgan Vanderbilt, the mother, uh, Thomas' sister, she was, she really had her reputation dragged through the mud as the result of this custody trial. And she was bisexual, which in the 1930s, was not, um, you know, not considered the thing to be. So Thelma, in standing by her sister, I think that 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 shows the strength of her character and her convictions. So uh, talk to us about her um, personal history and particularly her second marriage and how that sets her up as a kind of future mistress of the Prince of Wales. So the the thing, through my research, the thing that really struck me in learning about her personality was how um, her mother defined her relationship towards men. Uh, Thelma was told from an early age that because she was beautiful, her job was to marry well, to marry money. Um, Thelma, Gloria, and their older sister Consuelo all had that drilled into them from a very young age. So when Thelma meets Marmaduke Furness, her second husband, who at the time was one of the wealthiest men in Britain, um, she really kind of had that ethos running in the back of her head. I mean, I do think that her relationship with, uh, with Marmaduke, uh, Duke Furness, was one based on love, um, but I don't think that that was where it was at the beginning. So with that rolling in the back of her mind, with the idea of marry money, marry power, um, get in with, the, with high society however you can, meeting the Prince of Wales would have been a, a real draw to her. I don't think that it was ultimately the draw that kept her with the Prince of Wales. I think that um, their relationship blossomed into something much deeper. But um, I think that 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 foundational lesson of her life and that foundational lesson that she ultimately turns away from is what uh, what really defined her in those earlier years. And at least in your book, um, she does eventually fall in love with David, which is what he was known in uh, by his friends and family, although we think of him as Edward VIII because that was the name he was crowned under. What draws her to him, other just than the fact that he's a prince? And does he feel the same way about her? So I think, as I said, I think the initial attraction was his power. I think Edward's initial attraction for many was the fact that he was one of the most powerful men in the world. He was not only powerful, he was handsome. He was considered like Prince William on steroids, Prince Harry on steroids. He was the, the pinup prince of the day. And so I think that that's where the attraction started. But as it grew, I think that the thing that really drew um, Thelma towards David was his vulnerability. He was an intensely vulnerable man. Um, he was very sensitive. And, you know, looking at his weaker sides, he was also, he was weak and he was selfish. But I think for Talma, a lot of that manifested itself as vulnerability. And that was what she drawn towards. Um, a lot of the times, you know, she was looking at him and looking at ways to kind of smooth the care from his face because he had this 
very winsome expression, this very pained expression in his, it, it, you know, you see it in pictures of him. He's always, he always looks handsome, but troubled. And so I think that it was understanding that she was the woman who could smooth those troubles from his face, from the face of the most powerful man in the world. Like what a position to be in, what a position of privilege to find yourself in when it was the man that you loved. And what about his side? I mean, is, is he doing this out of love or is, is it something else in your view? I mean, this, this is all you, your interpretation of him we're talking about, yeah. not necessarily the prince himself. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that the prince was famous for was his passion for anything American. He saw uh, the United States as sort of the bastion of the modern. He loved anything new. He loved um, toasters, strangely. Electric toasters were one of the things that he absolutely adored. And I think that he saw American women as modern. He saw them as not beholden to this antiquated notion of the monarchy, this antiquated notion of him as the Prince of Wales. I think that he saw in Thelma, he saw someone who would see him for himself and not for the crown. So I believe that that was the, that was the draw to, towards Thelma for him. And that was also, to be fair, the draw towards Wallace Simpson. Uh, the difference between the two, of course, is that Thelma married into British aristocracy. So she had more of a deference towards his position, more of a deference towards the crown in general. Um, you'll notice in, in the book, she's hesitant to towards becoming close with his family. She's hesitant towards uh, making a scene with the king and queen, whereas when Wallace came on the picture, she didn't really mind. Um, she didn't, you know, she kind of threw her hands up at the notion of the monarchy in general. And in that... Um, Wallace allowed Edward to kind of give in to his weaker impulses, as opposed to Thelma, who always assumed that he would become king and he'd become a good king. Wallace allowed him to say, no, that's not what I want. Let's um, talk a bit about uh, Thelma's marriage, because she she's not only drawn to Prince of Wales, she is in a sense um, maybe pushed away from her husband. Um, Mm-hmm. In some ways, even though at some point it became a love match. Uh, tell us about him. It's it's so funny. I have to say, you were talking about the Kardashians earlier, but it sounds so 20, late 20th century for him to be called Viscount Duke Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> what a great name, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like Prince Michael Jackson or something. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, tell us about him, his, his personality, his family, um, and his relationship with Thelma. So he was actually one of my favorite characters to write, and I wasn't expecting him to be. I came to his character thinking he was an unfaithful man. That's what we know about him. The reason that Thelma ends up with the Prince of Wales is because her husband, Duke, is uh, is having an affair. And so I initially thought, okay, well, he's he's a bit of a villain. And as I grew to kind of build my understanding of him, it became quite clear to me that he wasn't a villain. He was a man of an older generation. He was a man of um, a different culture and a different class structure. He was kind of built in that world. And he didn't see things the way that Talma did. He saw affairs as a natural course of a marriage. Um, As I said, he was one of the wealthiest men in Britain at the time. Uh, He made his money in shipbuilding. He had two children Um, from his previous wife, Daisy, who died quite suddenly and quite horrifically, actually, on their yacht as they were rounding, I believe it was the Rock of Gibraltar. And he was 
considered one of the most eligible bachelors in England at the time when Thelma met him. So when she came onto the scene, um, he, he kind of, I don't, he wasn't really looking for a wife, but he found Thelma and they connected. And when he proposed to her, they, you know, they kind of grew into this marriage and it was almost a marriage. I think Thelma saw it more as a marriage of equals than he did because when he started cheating on her, his, the expectation was, well, she'll always be at home. He cheated on Daisy as well, his previous wife, and she was always there waiting at home. But Thelma, being an American and being a generation younger, she was actually closer in age to uh, Duke's children than to Duke. She didn't see it that way. She saw things differently. She saw that she saw that if he's going to have an affair, I'm going to have an affair because apparently we don't divorce. Um, there's a character in the book named Lady Sarah who lets Selma in on sort of the difference between American and British royalty, if you, if you want to call it that at the time, or aristocracy, which is um, in, in Britain, we, have, or we don't divorce, we have affairs. So Selma decides to take that and, and turn that to her advantage. Um, what's sauce for the goose is, is sauce for the gander. So that's really kind of how that whole situation came about. But when Thelma ended up having an affair with the Prince of Wales, she completely turned the table because how could he compete? How could he get her back when she was having an affair with the Prince of Wales? So I think it, it, it turns out to be quite a, a sad story for Duke because I think he always expected them to come back together in the end until Thelma went after, you know, the only man more powerful than him. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And I would imagine, too, that if he's um, from that sort of, I mean, he's post-Victorian, of course, but Edwardian generation, maybe, um, he wouldn't feel that he could object to an affair. I mean, that, that was one of the things, was that if you were the king or the Prince of Wales or whatever, you could have affairs and, and husbands were just supposed to, you know, grit their teeth. Yeah, and I mean, Edward was famous for pursuing married women. He pursued affairs with married women um, right up until he met Wallace Simpson. And so much of that was because the expectation was they didn't want anything from him. They weren't gonna, uh, they weren't gonna ask for marriage. They weren't, you know, they were almost safer for him wanting to have affairs with women. And so, and so, I think both Edward and Duke expected Thelma to go back to Duke once the affair with Edward ran its course. But for Thelma, of course, knowing all the history that had come between them, knowing that Edward was always going to be there in both of their minds, that that just wasn't going to be the basis on which they could rebuild an honest relationship again. So I do get the impression that Duke, um, again, within this constraint of, you know, what was expected of men in the uh, early 20th century, yeah, I get the impression he's a pretty decent father, though. He seems to have a good relationship with his kids and with the son that he has with Thelma. And um, she has a good relationship, too, with her stepchildren. 
She really does. And and I think that that, you know, you always expect the evil stepmother trope to come up in a story like this. And and with Tama, that really wasn't the case. As I said, she was closer in age to Duke's children, um, Dickie and Avril. And I think that, that that created a bond, an unexpected bond between them, uh, Avril in particular. So uh, Dickie, uh, Duke's eldest son, he was, you know, schoolboy, nice kid. He, he was he was very famously of just a very sunny disposition. And um, he actually died in the Second World War um, fighting in Iraq. And he received the Medal of uh, the Medal of Valor for his actions. Um, he went down defending a uh, defending a convoy of equipment and supplies from a German tank. And uh, just a heartbreaking end for a really lovely, um, lovely young man. And then Avril, who gives Thelma a very hard time at the beginning of, uh, of her relationship with Duke, she ends up becoming very close with Thelma. Um, I think because Thelma spent so much time with her and Thelma respected her as an individual in a time and a place where women were expected to be socialites and, you know, pretty and, and marry. Avril really didn't want to do that. She was, uh, she was much more her father than her mother. She was a hunter. She, uh, she wanted to run a country estate and she ended up, um, she ended up marrying for love and uh, marrying a man who was really penniless. And her story in, in and of itself is absolutely tragic, but I, I really just admired Avril so much for being who she was in a time and a place when people kind of didn't expect that and people weren't necessarily going to allow that. But to, uh, to Thelma's credit, she accepted Avril for who she was. And I think that that really was the basis of the bond between them. What about Thelma's own son? So Tony, uh, Tony Furness, he ended up, um, you know, obviously with Thelma after the war, they were the only two left of the Furness family. And he ended up, uh, he was in theater. He, you know, he inherited his father's seat, but he died in the 1980s, uh, which was quite sad. But uh, yeah, he was very well-respected, well-respected theater patron. We've already mentioned that Tama has a twin sister, Gloria, and um, she's the other half of this story. Let's start with where she is at the, not at the beginning, because we've already talked about that. But in the early days of Tama's marriage, uh, Gloria and Reggie Vanderbilt are living in France. So tell us a bit about their life and about their child, um, just to get started, because that's a, what happens, as you mentioned, there's a major custody battle, which we won't go into all the details about, but, but paint the, uh, the background for us. So uh, when the book opens, Gloria and Reginald Vanderbilt are absolutely living the high life in France. Reggie was the youngest son of Alice, uh, Alice Vanderbilt, uh, and he had inherited, I believe it was something like $31 million from his father upon his father's death. And he and Gloria were spending it like water. They were kind of bouncing all around the world, having an incredible time. And, and they really did it. You know, it seems to me they, they had a genuine love bond. They had a love connection. But uh, Reggie's greatest vice was excess. He drank to excess. He partied to excess. He smoked to excess. 
And um, in the, at, you know, at the end of their first year of marriage or shortly thereafter, uh, Gloria had given birth to a daughter, little Gloria Vanderbilt, and Reggie died of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, and it was a really just horrific death, absolutely tragic. He was about 40 years old at the time. And when he died, it came out that he had frittered away all of the money, absolutely everything. He was heavily in debt when he died. And he, Reggie believed that he was leaving Gloria and his staff with, uh, you know, he was going to leave them all comfortable. He, he genuinely believed that he was leaving Gloria Vanderbilt in a comfortable situation, but he wasn't. He owed uh, $14,000 to a butcher when he died, which is just unconscionable to think of. But, um, you know, people traded on the, he, he traded on the Vanderbilt name and he gave out IOUs. And so when uh, really the action of the book kicks off, this trial kicks off, it's because the only money that was left was uh, from the grandfather. Um, it had skipped over Reggie. There was a $2.5 million trust fund that was left to little Gloria Vanderbilt, the, the daughter, the infant daughter. And so what ended up happening was Gloria was allowed to live off of the uh, income from that trust fund, but she wasn't allowed to touch it. And all of that 2.5 million was meant for little Gloria. And because Gloria senior at the time was underage, she was not allowed to administer the funds herself. Uh, all of that went to a, a surrogate court eventually, or, or a group of surrogate lawyers who would um, kind of determine how that money could be doled out. And it became the source of a thousand battles um, for Gloria senior and her daughter, little Gloria, because Gloria Sr. wanted to live her life. She wanted to live a life to which she'd become accustomed. And the surrogates simply weren't willing to allow that to happen. Um, what ends up coming to a head, the reason that this becomes a, uh, a custody battle, is because Gertrude, uh, Gertrude Payne Whitney, who was Reggie's older sister, uh, ends up suing Gloria Vanderbilt for custody of, of the child, of little Gloria, because um, Gloria, Van Gloria Sr. was seen as an unfit mother. And one of the reasons that, you know, she was perceived as unfit was because she would have parties, she'd have, you know, people come stay the night, and she ended up having an affair with uh, Nadeja Milford Haven. She was part of um, the British aristocracy, and that was seen as unacceptable at the time. And so um, Gertrude sued Gloria for custody, and it just became an absolute mudslinger of the battle. There's also a character named Friedel, uh, who is associated with Gloria. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, Friedel, uh, Prince Gottfried zu Hohenlo. Um, forgive my pronunciation of that, but he was a uh, he was a lesser German prince, um, and he uh, proposed marriage to Gloria uh, shortly after, well, not shortly after, but after after Reggie's death, he fell in love with Gloria and he, he wanted to marry her and Gloria's uh, mother put her foot down over that because she felt that um, Friedel was trying to marry Gloria in order to get to gain control over little Gloria's inheritance, which I don't believe that was ever the case um, for, for Gloria's mother, Laura Morgan. Um, she wanted control over, over that trust fund for herself. She, you know, as I said, her invective to her daughters was marry money and her own 
mantra was control money in whatever way you can. And so she wanted control of this trust fund, which is why she ended up siding with Gertrude Whitney in this in, in the custody battle. But she accused Friedel of a thousand different things. She accused him of being abusive towards little Gloria. She accused him of wanting to control the trust fund. And as a result, um, Alice Vanderbilt, Reggie's mother, who had um, given her blessing to Gloria um, for the marriage between Gloria and, and Friedel, she ended up withdrawing her support and Gloria could not marry Friedel, um, her, her German prince. And so it was after that, which I think really kind of turned Gloria's mind against this whole system. Um, that was when she started having extravagant parties. That was when she took up with uh, Nadezhda Milford Haven. And to her mind, it was, I had my heart broken when my husband died. My heart's been broken again because I can't marry the man that I want to marry now. So I'm just going to spend every cent that I have available from the interest of this trust fund. And that, um, that, that was, uh, I don't want to say her mistake because I don't blame her for being bitter, but uh, it was definitely what kicked off the trial. So the mothers in this story uh, don't come off very well, basically. <laughs> I guess because we're looking at it from Thomas and Gloria's point of view. But do you think they had something, some right on their side? Or were they really, it, was it really mostly a fight about money and control? I think it was a fight about money and control more than anything. Um, you know, little Gloria Vanderbilt, who is, you know, not little now, um, I believe she died last year. Uh, she passed away at 93 years old. But, you know, she talks about this court case. She talks about the trial and, and um, she was sort of oblivious to it. I mean, I don't think that Gloria and Thelma themselves were, I think they were mothers of their time more than anything. They, you know, it was, it was a time and place where children would be trotted out at tea time and, you know, mom would pat them on the head and say, aren't you lovely? And then they'd go back up to the nurseries. You know, children at the time were raised by nannies. They were raised by maids. And, and so I don't think, and, and particularly given the example that they were given from their own mother, who was a terrible mother, absolutely terrible. It's not surprising that they wouldn't have learned how to be mothers themselves. Uh, and, and you also have to keep in mind that they were very young when this happened. Gloria, Gloria Vanderbilt had her daughter, little Gloria, at, I believe 19 years old uh, or 18 years old. So they just weren't ever given the tools to become good mothers. And in a time and a place where good motherhood wasn't a given, um, they kind of were, you know, out in the woods, so to speak. I was actually asking more about uh, Thelma's and Gloria's mothers and or mother and and uh, Grace Whitney, but uh, you answered that question too, so <laughs> that's great. Um, so it's through this. Uh, I mean, there are multiple connections uh, in this story, and so tell us how uh, Thelma meets Wallace Simpson because it's connected with Gloria. It is indeed. So uh, Wallace Simpson was a friend of Thelma's older sister, Consuelo. And on a weekend where Thelma was meant to be hosting a party for the Prince of Wales, Consuelo and her husband, Benny, weren't able to join. And um, because Thelma was separated from her husband and the Prince of Wales was coming, 
they needed to have a chaperone and a chaperone, a chaperone couple. And that really was almost like a fig leaf in the time, in the time where it was, okay, if you're going to have a weekend party, there's got to be a respectable married couple here to make sure that nothing untoward happens. And of course, at all of these parties, the respectable married couple would turn their heads and, you know, at any sign of impropriety, they just wouldn't look. So Consuelo and Benny were meant to be the, you know, the chaperone couple on this weekend. And when Benny was unable to join, or, or when Consuelo was unable to join, she recommended Wallace Simpson and her husband Ernest as an alternative. So Wallace and uh, Wallace and Ernest joined Telma and the Prince of Wales at Telma's country estate, Pearl Court, in Melton Mowbray, uh, for the beaver hunt. And that meeting really was rather nondescript. Uh, both uh, Edward and Wallace acknowledged that that's when they met, but that wasn't the time that Edward really noticed. Wallace Simpson. He didn't really notice her until the uh, evening when I believe it was the debutante ball, um, which was this big, great society party, which would happen every year where the debutantes in, uh, in London and beyond would be presented to the King and Queen of England. And Wallace was one of the debutantes that year. And the reason she caught Edward's attention was because um, Edward had made a comment during the uh, ceremony telling uh, his friends that all of the women looked ghastly in the light and Wallace called him out on it. And Edward had kind of never, he wasn't used to being called out before and he thought it was hilarious. And that was the first time where Wallace really caught his attention and that's when they became friends. Uh, and Telma, of course, was the one who introduced them and Telma was fr good friends with Wallace Simpson um, up, until, up until the their fateful lunch at the Ritz. So uh, it must be pretty obvious to our listeners that there's a lot of uh, history behind this novel, um, but ultimately it is a novel. So how would you describe the balance of history and fiction here? What, what is it that, what did you do with the, the raw data, so to speak, uh, to turn it into a novel? So I was really, really lucky with this book because all of my main characters, almost all of my main characters, uh, had kept memoirs. Uh, they wrote memoirs after the fact. They kept diaries. And so I was able to have a lot of kind of firsthand accounts of these parties and these places where they were. Um, Wallace and Edward, of course, their courtship is very well documented. And Thelma appears sort of on the margins of that courtship. And so, and, and I mean, when it comes to the custody trial, um, there was an incredible book written in the 1970s uh, called Little Gloria, Happy at Last, where the author chronicles uh, the events of the trial. And um, she also dips into Telma's relationship with the Prince of Wales. So I had a lot of raw data to work with. And for me, the important thing was sticking as close to the historical record as possible while not letting the historical record stand in the way of a well-constructed story. Um, in reality, when Thelma left Edward to go to support her sister in the custody trial, that actually happened about, I believe it was six months after her relationship with Edward had ended. So um, I, I pushed those two together in order to build that closer comparison between them and to move the plot forward in a quicker way. Um, that said, there's a revelation that comes out at the court trial, which, which is true to fact about Edward and about the um, lawyer who is sent by Madame Milford Haven. Uh, I won't go into more detail than that. 
but that's all truth. And, and yeah, so for me, it was stick as close as possible to the historical facts, um, imbue the motivation that I can derive from their memoir, taking them with a grain of salt, of course, and kind of flesh it out from there. So what would you like readers to take away from The Woman Before Wallace? So this book is billed as a royal romance. It's not a love story between Talma and David. It is a love story between Talma and her sister, Gloria. Um, for me, that's the strongest relationship in the book. And that's the relationship that, that fuels all of the action. That's the relationship that, that drives Talma. And that's the relationship that Talma ultimately um, values most in her life. So, so for me, it's, it would have been easy to write this as a love story. It would have been easy to look at it as um, the woman, as literally just the woman before Wallace. And that kind of take, take that as the be all and end all of Thomas story, but it, it wasn't her, the love of her life was Gloria, her sister and the love of Gloria's life. I think in many ways was also Talma. So I, I'd like readers to take away that this is, this is a story. It's a beautiful, beautiful friendship and a beautiful love between sisters. Uh, I'm really lucky to have, uh, you know, to have a similar relationship with my sister, hopefully less dramatic, but um you know, that's what that's what this book celebrates is the bond between sisters. I think that's a really great um, element of the book, actually. I mean, it, it gives Thelma so much more depth uh, than if she were oh, just thank you. the royal mistress. I really like that, that we get a real sense of her as a person and her sister as a person. And, you know, it goes way beyond uh, the cliches that you might imagine about a royal romance. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because I I didn't want any of my characters to come across as cliches. That just that that wasn't interesting to me. These were individuals. No one's a hero. No one's a villain. Um, these were all people making, you know, admittedly selfish people, but they were all people making choices. And so it was more about who they were as opposed to painting them as, you know, saints and sinners. This novel's just come out, but we know publishing takes a while. So are you already working on something new? I am. I am. I'm writing a book right now about the fall of the Romanov dynasty, told from the perspective of the eldest daughter, Olga. Okay. Well, you definitely have to come back and talk to us about that. I'm a Russian specialist, as you (laughs) may know or may not know. (laughs) Fabulous. I'd love to come back. That'd be fun. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Bryn. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Bryn Turnbull about the woman before Wallace. Find out more about her at www.brynturnbull.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. <laughs>